This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Wednesday, April 12th. 2023 on today's episode we're gonna have a spoiler-filled conversation about the mandalorian chapter 23 the spies this is slash home editorial director peter soretta and joining me on today's podcast the slash home editor brad oman hey that's me and star wars expert brian young i'm still in europe it's way too late for me <laughs> by the way I, I should mention before we get into this that there was this big warner brothers presentation today we're not going to have time to talk about it on today's podcast, but you'll want to go to SlashFilm.com because there's a ton of news and info that came out of it. Brad, you've been paying attention to this. Is there anything like you should quickly say? Uh, t- um, I mean, I, I guess the, just, just the overall gist of it is that this was the official announcement of the new streaming service that will combine HBO Max and Discovery+. Plus. Uh, even though Discovery Plus will still remain its own thing, HBO Max will be absorbed into this, and it is under a new uh, name ca- just called simply Max. Uh, and it will have all of the HBO stuff. It will have all of the Discovery Plus stuff. And they announced uh, and teased upcoming things like the Penguin TV series spinoff from The Batman. They're making a series based around The Conjuring. They announced a, a massive, uh, officially a massive new Harry Potter TV series adaptation that will span 10 years and be a quote faithful adaptation of all seven books uh they officially announced one of the new game of thrones series and so a bunch of stuff happening uh and we we covered it all uh on the old slash film.com so make sure you check that out okay that won't, couldn't cause any confusion with cinemax <laughs> I, I forget who said it in our slack but someone said like oh great idea cutting out the most prestigious n- name in your <laughs> in your uh streaming service I don't know. Uh, yeah, and going with like Cinemax, which is the cheapest part of the 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 combo name. But okay. Anyways, um, before we get into chapter twenty three, and boy, we got a lot to talk about in chapter twenty three. Uh, we had a bunch of emails from uh, last week, and actually one about uh, the celebration stuff. So first off, Heather Fox writes in, I like the theory that Grogu could join Rey in teaching the new Jedi Order, but I think they're setting Grogu up for the future of Mandalore. Here are some of the reasons I believe this. Number one, he would be the second leader since uh, Tara Vizsla to be Mandalorian slash Jedi. Two, we have seen him calm large creatures. He will likely be the one to ride the Mythosaur. Three, he would 
be able to rule Mandalore for centuries. And four, we have always assumed that the title of the show was about Din, but what if it's actually about the origins of the greatest ruler of Mandalore, Grogu? Brian, I'm, I'm sure you have something to say about this. I mean, if if that's what they're interested in believing, I mean, they're very welcome to it. <laughs> I feel like the title has changed meaning a lot over the course of the seasons, though. So right now, I think the Mandalorian is more like Bo-Katan and, and the whole culture rather than any one person. But, you... I mean, yeah, I think Grogu, Grogu probably does have a, a lot to do with the future of Mandalore, but I don't think there's going to be a Mandalorian and Jedi again, unless they're tying it into the, the Rey Skywalker New Jedi Order stuff. And he's going to come back and say, fine, I'm, I'm ready to be taught. Brad, what do you think? Do you think Grogu will appear in that New Jedi Order movie? You know, it's it's possible, I guess, but I feel like that's just like forcing too many things together that don't necessarily need to be together. I feel like the the new Jedi Order movie needs to set itself apart from everything else in Star Wars. You know, setting it 15 years after Rise of Skywalker is is a statement, you know, to like let some time pass and let them do something new, even though they're keeping Rey as part of it. And so I feel like forcing elements of the Mandalorian in there creates just maybe a little too much interconnectivity when Dave Filoni is already doing something about that with his own movie. So I, I'm going to say no. I also think it kind of deflates like the tension of what's going to happen in this, this series, knowing that Mandalore, uh, uh, that uh, Grogu made it, made it out and knowing how he ended up and probably if you saw him in that movie, you would have to learn about the, the fates of other people in this show. Um, so I don't know. I don't feel like it, it makes much sense to have him in the movie as much as I think people think it's a cool idea. Uh, but actually one, one last idea, uh, one last question for you, Brian, because you brought this up, the, the title of the show, the Mandalorian. Do you think when they started the show that they had, had intended to expand it as much as they have? I think by the time they got to season two. Yeah. Um, I think it's season one. My impression is that John Favreau was really interested in telling a Boba Fett story, and Boba Fett was already taken at that point when he was developing it with that Josh Trank movie. And he was like, well, here's what I think Boba Fett is, should have been like. And then as he expanded more Mandalorian culture and spent any time whatsoever with Dave Filoni, he was like, oh, Mandalore is much bigger than one dude. You know, one interesting thing I think... I didn't see anybody pick up on this, but Kathleen Kennedy did an interview at Celebration, and during the interview, she mentioned that The Mandalorian actually started as a pitch for a movie. It was originally going to be a movie, and then it became a TV show. So I'm wondering what that was, but, I mean, maybe it was Boba Fett. I mean, it could have <laughs> been. I mean, it, it could have been, but they were already doing the Trank thing, but maybe maybe it was just season one compressed down into uh, delivering him to Luke Skywalker, or maybe, I guess, the first two seasons. Yeah. Okay. We have another email from Matthew. He says, in the most recent discussion about the latest episode of Mandalorian, you guys picked up on the Alice in Wonderland influences, but didn't bring up the heavy Isaac Asimov influence. I felt that the episode felt like a love letter to Isaac Asimov's old noir detective robot series. In that series, 
humans have reached other planets and have gotten robots to do all the labor, freeing people's time. People live inside large dome structures connected by tunnels so that the people rarely go outside. The series has two detectives with the lead detective being this very distrustful of robots, but over several stories turns around and to trust them just like Din's current arc. The stories start with two detectives getting called in because malfunctioning robots often murder, uh, often murder. And while robots are initially the lead suspects, it's always a human who is behind the crime having found some way to bypass uh, Asimov's three laws of robotics. I really loved uh, Asimov's novels growing up and I absolutely loved this episode as I felt like it was the closest thing to seeing one of those novels adapted for TV. Brian, do you have any experience with any of those novels? No, I'm not as familiar with Asimov as I am with, with say Philip K. Dick, which we did bring up, bring up a ton, you know, right? Like the do androids dream of electric sheep feels very on the sleeve there too. And I, I feel like that's probably the broader cultural touchstone to stories like that, but I'm not discounting any of the Asimov. There are definitely people who are more well-versed in that sort of stuff than I am. And, and so I didn't pick up on it because I'm just, I'm just not familiar with those stories. Yeah. Me, me neither. I'm just, uh, I'm more, um, I know it's bigger stuff. Uh, Spencer writes in, if the dark saber goes to whoever defeats the owner, then it belongs to Luke. In Clone Wars, Maul def- defeated Vizsla. Later, Ahsoka defeated Maul. In Ahsoka, in Rebels, Ahsoka is defeated by Darth Vader. And finally, Luke defeats Vader in, in return. However, if <laughs> if it's while they're wielding it, then it would belong to Darth Maul because Sabine just found it. Well, <laughs> Maul took it back. So Maul, like, even though he lost it for a while, he... Uh... You know, he took it back. <laughs> I, I I think the lineage of the Dark Saber is a little ridiculous, anyways, and the whole rules beyond it and everything. Actually, the whole rules of the Mandalorian kind of ridiculous, but whatever. Um, okay, Nathan writes in. This is my uh, the last email here. Nathan says my biggest beef with the sequel trilogy was the state of the galaxy at the end of Rise of Skywalker was almost the same exact thing as the end of. Return of the Jedi, the only difference being now all our favorite characters are all dead. Uh, I'm really glad that the upcoming Ray movie and- will deal with the reestablishment of the Jedi Order as it felt like it was the overall focus of the... Se- it should have been the overall focus of the sequels from the start. I also really hope that John Boyega signs on some capacity. One more thing, the villains in Nisoka have orange lightsabers. Do you know if that has ever been done before or is this new? So before we answer that last question, Brian, it sounded like you had something to say about this. Uh... Yeah, no, I mean, like, um, you, you know, uh, some of I mean, many of my favorite characters are still alive, whether that's Ray or Finn Mine or too. Poe Dameron or BB-8 or Rose Tico or even Aftab Akbar. You know, like it goes R2, on and on C-3PO. And on. Dennis Lawson, like or uh, Wedge Antilles, like there's a whole bunch of fan favorite characters in that era that 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 can still be around. So I'm not quite sure where he's getting that. I mean, yeah, like Luke is dead, but what is the, the trio is dead? Jedi, yeah, but I mean, like he, they're, I mean, like they're probably not going to bring Carrie Fisher back as a Force Ghost, but they definitely can bring Luke back. Yeah, I mean, they have already brought him back, so 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and they can bring Yoda back and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. And I, there's no shortage of people we love from previous iterations of Star Wars that could show up. Um, as far as the, the second part, what was it was... Uh, in Ahsoka, was there's orange lightsabers in Ahsoka. Oh. Um, I think they're still just shades of red. So it's like, it's just Dave Filoni trying to get a, a, a spectrum on it. But I wonder if, if they're... I, I I had this idea in my head when I was thinking about those orange sabers is that they were um, somehow bled from yellow crystals, um, like like imperial or not imperial uh, Jedi Temple Guard crystals, and by people who weren't quite as dark as that. I don't know. That's that's something I have in my head. But at, at the end of the day, it's still just sort of a shade of red that's a little bit more orange than red, and it's still bad guys. Yeah, I think you're probably onto something. I think there's probably something thematically about them not being as like full on Sith, you know. So not denoting uh, them being this dark red color. Brad, do you have any theories on the orange lightsabers in Ahsoka? You know, I, I feel like that they're just like variations because like they're not all going to look like you know pure red lightsabers, and you know you, there has to be some uh, differentiation between those those weapons and those villains, especially if you're dealing with a different time period, you know. So it's, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything probably like uh, significant about it. But if there is, you know, we'll, we'll find out during the series. I don't think they have any orange kyber crystals in Galaxy's Edge. No, they don't. Right. They just have no, the purple, red, yellow, green, blue, white and white and, black, and the elusive black. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, uh, the, well, th there, we're going to have to all get new lightsabers that can do an orange color. <laughs> uh, more reason to buy stuff. Okay, uh, let's get into a brief a brief reaction on Chapter 23, The Spies. Brad, I'm going to start off with you. What, what is your thoughts on this week's episode? Easily uh, the best episode of the season right here. Uh, a great lead-in to the season finale. Uh, plenty of action, lots of cool reveals, stuff we weren't uh, expecting, uh, great character moments. You know, um, just yeah, just I absolutely loved everything about this episode, right down to the the score. I was like jumping up and down watching this episode. I was screaming things in the air. I was like, I was, I don't know. Yeah, it's one of the best episodes of the series. It's definitely the best episode of the season. There's so much great action. There's um. It furthers the lore. It expands the the universe. It, it connects to the movies. It uh, has big reveals. It has cute creatures. Has some uh, cool looking stuff. Uh, Brian, what, what what are your thoughts? I, I can't even imagine, Brian, that last time we talked to you on Friday, you you had just I'd walked out it. of this episode and you yeah. were able to keep it in and talk about other Star Wars stuff because I would have just wanted to talk about this episode. Well, Peter, I'm a professional. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, it was so fun. I really love, you know, last time we talked about the Mandalorian, we talked about how they were really going to need to establish stakes and establish who it is they're taking Mandalore back from. And we talked a lot about the structure of the episodes that have sort of led up to this. And they really turned it on its ear where we've had these these bookends on either side of the episode with Din and uh, Bo-Katan, 
almost the entire season, they reverse that and give that to us with Moff Gideon. And it, it's such a reversal of the structure of all the stories. And it's so cleverly done and it did exactly everything that I feel like we talked about it needing to do in order to really kick us off into this season finale. And I was just thoroughly satisfied by it. And it's got some of my favorite ridiculous bits of Star Wars in it, even after last week's episode that had some of my most favorite now ridiculous bits of Star Wars. Yeah, I I think that's kind of like, Brian, I know you're a writer, you're a fiction writer, as well as, you know, obviously writing for Slash Film and writing about pop culture. But like, it's it's kind of the danger of writing something in the you're trying to build up to a reveal or have secrecy. And I think JJ Abrams runs into this a lot with his work, even outside of star Wars, like it kind of um, it, the downside of it is if you're not going to reveal the villain until the, you know, the last two episodes or the, the climactic, uh, the third act, it, it, it it does pose some problems to the the overall story. I think, I think, I, I kind of call that Stephen King syndrome, right? Like, I love Stephen King, but the way he structures his stories is, or the way he writes them is that he won't outline them. He'll start with a premise and a character and then just start throwing the character at the premise. And the premise is very mysterious. And by the time he gets to the end, how many Stephen King books end with it, with it being just like, oh, it was aliens, because it's the only plausible explanation <laughs> he can come up with at the end. And with this, you can see Favreau and and with the help of Filoni, who co-wrote an episode or two, really laid the groundwork for Moff Gideon being a constant threat beneath the surface of this entire season, even if we weren't seeing him. Whether that was episode three with Dr. Pershing, or whether that was the Beskar armor, which paid off beautifully here, um, or Aaliyah Kane through the episode with Carson Teva, like... There's the hand of Moff Gideon, just like we've been talking about this whole time, sort of um, playing a hand here the whole time. And so so when you I don't feel like people could be could feel cheated by having Moff Gideon show up this way because it has been so thoroughly set up over the course of not just this season, but everything we know about Moff Gideon from his first appearance. Oh yeah, I'm not saying it, it, like it cheated and like a you know con reveal in Star Trek Into the Darkness or whatever that movie was called. Um, I'm just talking about like um, in the fact that like it, it a lot of the criticism of this season of Mandalorian is it's kind of aimless, and I feel like the fact of that is we didn't know who the villain was, we didn't know where the story was like, going. Even we, like though the did, st- we not, did eh. we not though? I mean like. If you go back and listen to our episodes of this show, it was like, oh, Moff Gideon's got his fingerprints all over that. Going back to episode three, like any but you're, you're, amount of I, media literacy is going to point you to who the villain is. <laughs> I think, I don't know, not to pat us on the backs, Brian, but I, I think we, we read a little bit more into some of, the, some of the stuff than most people do. But we're not wrong. <laughs> well sometimes we are but this time we were not wrong right okay um let's get into the breakdown let's do this um so this episode was directed by rick famiwa who 
has directed two seasons in season one. He directed one episode. He directed two episodes in season one. He directed one episode in season two and in three episodes this season, including, I think, the first episode of the season. And then he's doing the two-part finale, which is this is the first part of the two-part finale. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's a producer on this 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 show, and uh, it's always good watching one of his episodes. Uh, Brad, any any thoughts on Rick's uh, direction in this episode? I mean, he did a great job handling a lot of moving pieces, uh, bringing the action together, uh, you know, weaving stuff, you know, and setting stuff up for the the uh, series, not series, season finale. Um, and, you know, and I think one of the things too is like, oftentimes, uh, you you'll get a penultimate episode of a season, and it's not necessarily all that exciting because it's doing a lot of table setting for what's really going to hit hard uh, in the season finale. But here, there was so much cool stuff that happened that also acted, you know, as a way of setting up, you know, a, a, a major uh, cliffhanger and conflict for the, the season finale. You know, this is, uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff in play here. A lot of great things that were, were teased. And so, yeah, he, he had a lot in his plate for this one. I was going to say even more notable, this episode is written by both John Favreau and Dave Filoni, I think everybody assumes that both of them write the episodes, but most of the episodes of Mandalorian are actually just written by John Favreau, and I think Filoni, you know, obviously helps, but he, John Favreau gets the 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 credit. He's he's doing the majority of the writing here. Filoni did write two episodes of previous seasons. There were the two episodes he directed in the first two seasons, and uh, this season he did write he did co-write with John Favreau the the foundling episode that Carl Weathers directed and this one. So this is the second episode that he's actually co-written with John Favreau. Brian, do you feel his fingerprints all over this one? I do. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think there's so much like anything that really overly relies on that old expanded universe stuff, I think is, is more Favreau or more Filoni than Favreau. And I think this is this has got it written all over that. And um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if if he was the one really plugging in those sequel trilogy pieces too. Oh, I think so. I think so. Okay, this episode begins on Coruscant in the neon alleyways on the lower levels, and it looks very Blade Runner. Brian, why is it always, always so misty on the lower levels of Coruscant? Um, because the cinematographer has a fog machine. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think it's actually interesting to say, like, these are the clouds. These are the clouds of Coruscant. That's how high up the lower levels actually are. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think about that. I, I, w- I was thinking maybe it was, like, all these, like, these, like, uh, ships and stuff, like, you know, flying above and all that stuff, kind of, like, all the, uh, the uh the fumes and the smog of that like kind of goes down to the lower levels but i don't know i like your reasoning better uh i still wish we got that 1313 game every time i see the the lower levels coruscant yeah no no doubt maybe one day yeah okay so amnesty officer g68 finds a small alley to meet an imperial probe droid not 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 too uh inconspicuous at all meeting a imperial probe droid do you think the probe droids brad what do you think do you think the probe droids have been like repurposed by the new republic so it's not like suspicious or do you think 
like the Imperial Remnant can still send a probe droid out, and it's like people aren't like, what is that thing doing here? Yeah, well, see, it does seem kind of weird. It's like, why would you use a, a droid that is so clearly an Imperial probe droid for this kind of thing? Like, sure, you know, this is probably the shadier area of Coruscant, so maybe people are just kind of minding their business and not worrying about it, you know? Uh, like, if you if you or I see a drug a drug deal going down on the streets of New York, we're not going to be like, hey, what are you doing, you rapscallions? Uh, so I, I think that, yeah, you know, it's a, a little bit, you know, probably not the best move on the part of the, the Empire, but... Uh, I guess a fun nod, you know, to people who love their probe droids. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she gives the probe droid her. What do you call this, Brian? Is it like your Imperial number? Yeah. She's... She just gave her TK number. Yeah. Yeah. TK 2755, which whenever they say a number like that, I'm always trying to figure out what it means because it's usually some kind of Easter egg or something. And uh, I searched it, came up with nothing. It's the number of a plane from Turkish Airlines. I don't think it's that. Uh, my guess is that it's uh, February 7th, 1955, uh, which might be a date that means something to someone, but I can't connect it to anything Star Wars or anybody related to Star Wars, but maybe it's something. Anyways, um, and with that, she is speaking to Moff Gideon over a hollow projection, confirming what we've known for some time. He escaped. He's alive. G68 reports to him that the pirates have run into trouble on Navarro. This is something I don't see anybody talking about uh, with this episode. And it's the thing that uh, is interesting to me because why is she concerned about the pirates on Navarro? Why is Gideon invested in the pirate situation on Navarro? The Mandalorians being brought up isn't brought up until a two sent you know, a few sentences after. So it's not like, He's like, you know, keep me abreast of the Mandalorian situation. It's like she's reporting on the situation on Navarro as if Gideon had some investment in it. it so I think I think uh, when he talks later to the Imperial Shadow Council, when he talks about how um, he was doing his own experiments and they were accusing him of using Pershing in his own stuff. Yeah, that's all the stuff he's been trying to protect and Grief Karga having a really nice, playing nice with Mandalorians and New Republic government there would be reason enough for him to destabilize everything with pirates if he needed to in order to uh, keep whatever secrets that are still there that he wants to keep secret. Hmm. I feel like there's something more here, but I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe this is the scene is just to tell Gideon that like the Mandalorians have you know, gathered together, the different clans have gathered together. She informs them of that, like the, the Bo-Katan's faction is now working with the Children of the Watch and Gideon uh, is going to have to deal with them. He walks down a catwalk with troopers stationed on both sides through these like um, energy fields or whatever you want to call them, uh, force fields. Uh, yeah. Are they, are these new stormtrooper designs? I, Brian, I think you wrote an article on yeah, the design. Yeah, I did. These are, these are loosely based on Imperial, the idea of Imperial Super Commandos, which originated with Ralph McQuarrie's original designs for Boba Fett, where his armor was all white and it was Beskar, and these were troopers loyal to the Empire and, and sort of like the next level of stormtrooper. We saw them again in Star Wars Rebels, where Gar Saxon, who was loyal to the Empire, 
um, and was the ruler of Mandalore, used these white sort of Mandalorian sort of uh, troopers as Imperial super commandos to sort of enforce the Empire's will. And now um, this is sort of a hint that Moff Gideon has been doing something more Mandalorian with his with his troops. Yeah, I was going to say, do, do you think this is supposed to show the evolution towards First Order armor, or is it supposed to show more of uh, Gideon, what he talks about later, of incorporating some of the Mandalorian into... Yeah, I think, I, th- I think this is more that. I think the First Order armor evolution is already sort of happening elsewhere with Brendel Hux. That makes sense. Uh, okay, we're going to get ba- back into this in a moment, but we're going to have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, so he then walks through a room with a cylindrical, uh, there's like these cylinder tanks on uh, either side, and they're filled with liquid, which looks like uh, human bodies, like a silhouette of human bodies inside. Are these like the clones? Yeah, we've seen these, we've seen these before on both on Navarro. And these were very similar to the cloning tanks that we saw remnants of Snoke in in Rise of Skywalker. Um, and I guess, like, you know, in a moment, he's going to tell uh, this crew, they like, oh, he has no interest in clones. And it just goes to show you he's he still has some kind of interest going on in clones. Brad, what do you think is going on here with uh, Gideon and, and the clone the cloning stuff? Yeah, I'm not really too sure. I mean, like, uh, there's obviously, you know, a part of this that could be linked to what we know will turn into the kind of cloning and experimentation that was done by the First Order and, like, Snoke uh, and, you know, the the Emperor and that kind of thing. Um, Whether this is something that is, like, directly tied to that or just more of, like, a a precursor or predecessor where Gideon is trying to make clones of, like, maybe make his own, like, super soldiers or something like that. It's something that he clearly you know, wanted the child for, you know, whether he's trying to like make more uh, force sensitive people that will be, you know, Imperial soldiers or, or whatever it is. Um, so yeah, some, something that will result in formidable henchmen, I would imagine. Um, okay. So in the next room, there's this hollow projector meeting between the Imperial remnant. And I got to admit, I didn't think about this the first time I saw this, but when I was rewatching this for this podcast, something occurred to me here. It seems like this meeting is taking place on Mandalore in Gideon's base because he has the clones and he has, it, it just looks like it. How is he having this teleconference with all these people in other worlds? If the whole point of Mandalore is that there's no way to get a signal out of Mandalore. I mean, I'm sure uh, I mean, that he's probably figured out a way so that he can have a signal out of Mandalore, but like maybe make it so that nobody else trying to attempt communications can pull that off. Yeah, we've had we've had signal jamming sort of as part of the Star Wars vocabulary since Return of the Jedi. And if everybody thinks that you can't get a signal out on Mandalore and they just don't try too hard, they're not going to look too much into that. And it's not like anybody's really been there, right? So, so Gideon sort of spreading that story and making that possible. He could very easily get his own signal out, but he could also be on his ship too. I mean, that's possible too. 
Although, do you think he, you really think he's still on the show? Like, it seems like he's underground now. Would he really want to like, someone be able to see the ship I mean, out there? Who knows? He's yeah. Gideon. <laughs> so they discuss keeping low profile so that the New Republic doesn't know how big their threat really is. Um, it's interesting in the credits, this group is credited as the Warlords where I think they should be credited as the Imperial Shadow Council, but apparently they're credited as the Warlords. Um, well, there's a, there's a number of them that are Warlords, um, and this is something that goes back to the old expanded universe, right? There were there were people like Warlord Zunge, and uh, even in the new canon where you've got like sort of the Imperial Warlord uh, Adelhard and things like that, where, where Warlord is sort of their title, and they refer to them as Warlords, elsewhere in Carson Tava's episode as well. Um, so these individual warlords are, are that. Um, but there's definitely some, some interesting folks on this council. Yeah. Why don't you talk about, there's two different folk, two different people in particular that are notable in star Wars canon and legends canon. Why don't you tell us about uh, maybe uh, the, the, the one that's closer to Thrawn. So um, the 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 guy that is sort of talking in this scene about uh, Thrawn's imminent return is uh, Admiral Gilad Paleon, and Paleon started in Timothy Zahn's *Heir to the Empire* books, and he was very much the right hand of Thrawn. We were all surprised when *Star Wars Rebels* came out because um, just before the Pergils take Thrawn off into the Unknown Regions, one of the captains that he's talking to on his radio before the entire fleet gets whisked off is Pelion. And so it was this really great name drop. So this really implies that Pelion was with Thrawn when they took off into the Unknown Regions and actually made his way back. And so him uh, talking about Thrawn's return um is actually holds a lot of water but in the expanded universe canon he was sort of there when thrawn was killed and had to try to keep the imperial remnant together and um kind of took them off uh the the board and, and had sort of not a tentative truce with the new republic but sort of didn't go after them the way they did with thrawn and they ended up sort of fighting side by side a little bit during the Yuzhan Vong invasion. Um, but he, uh, he was also betrayed and killed uh, during a conflict where he didn't want to sort of join force, forces with Jason Solo, who was in very much the full Kylo Ren, Ben Solo sort of turn to the dark side mode. Um, so he had a really long well-respected career in the Republic and the uh, Imperial Navy in the Legends canon and was one of the biggest boosters of Grand Admiral Thrawn uh, through his career. And now he's back. And uh, that's really exciting for folks who are looking at Thrawn getting teased through everything here and, and on Ahsoka. Okay, so you said something that I'm, I'm, I, I want to make sure that we're clear on. You're saying that he was with Thrawn in Rebels, at the end of Rebels, when Thrawn and Ezra kind of disappear into the, wherever they end up disappearing to. Yeah. Um, 
unless I'm misremembering, but 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 yeah, he was. Oh, I'm not. Was I'm not like there. Yeah, I'm not challenging you. I'm not doubting you. I'm just wondering because that to me would confirm that Thrawn is already out of wherever he is. You know, was sent to. He he's yeah come back. Whereas I'm the rest of the scene, I'm under the impression that we ha- that Gideon hasn't seen Thrawn yet. Is what, what yeah, I'm getting no. the impression of. So yeah, right here. I mean, I'm double checking. Um, yeah. Thrawn was dealing with the rebels on the planet's surface, and he learned that the entire blockade was destroyed by uh, unidentified objects. And he contacted Pelion, who let him know that uh, their attackers had come out of hyperspace, and that was the Pergil. So yeah. Um, Pelion was definitely in that engagement. Mm, interesting. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, they they mentioned Grand Admiral Thrawn. Uh, this is the first time he's mentioned in this show. Is that true? No. Um, in season two, there's that episode with Morgan El- Elsbeth on the planet of Caladan where Ahsoka says, tell me where Grand Admiral Thrawn is, and she she name-checks him quite blatantly in Season 2. I forgot about that. Okay, so... Oh, you got me. Yeah. So you're under the belief that Thrawn has recovered from wherever he was sent in Rebels, but probably at this point in time, even though things are going to jump around in Ahsoka, so we don't know, but probably at this point in time, Ezra is still missing. Well, I think I think Thrawn is still out there. I mean, like Thrawn is definitely out in the middle of nowhere as well, and Ezra hasn't found a way back. And I mean, you gotta. I mean, I think Ezra's probably with Thrawn. Um, you know, when Ezra went and surrendered himself to uh, Thrawn, right? Like he didn't really have any support. He he's yeah. on a star destroyer full of people who are loyal to Thrawn. It's not like he's going to have help getting off the bridge or anything. So he could well be a prisoner of Thrawn's. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the warlords says that Thrawn's return will provide Commandant Hux enough time to deliver Project Necromancer. There's a lot to unpack here. We're, we're only in the first scene of this, uh, uh, the first like sequence before even the, the title reveal. And there's just like so much to talk about here. Um, Commandant Hux, who is he? So the Commandant Hux here is Brendel Hux. This is the father of General Hux, who incidentally is played here by Brian Gleason, which is Donald Gleason's brother. Um, both of them are sons of uh, Bre- uh, Brendan Gleason, which is kind of where the name Brendel Hux comes from. And uh, Oh, is we- that what Pablo was talking about? I, don't, I haven't seen what Pablo was talking okay, about. Okay, so uh, I'm going to pull this up right now. On Twitter, Pablo Hidalgo, he's one of the members of the Lucasfilm Story Groups, he he tweeted, this week's Mandalorian has an has the on-screen debut of a character that I created as sort of an inside joke with casting that pays off that joke, and it happened completely organically. That is, I didn't know it happened until it happened, and that's really rather cool, fun stuff. Yeah, that that that, that could be exactly what he's talking about. But so, um, Brendel, we learned a lot about in further storytelling in Chuck Wendig's Aftermath and how he took off to the Unknown Regions to um, 
train the stormtrooper armies of the first order and was likely um in charge of the program that was kidnapping kids to bring them into that stormtrooper program and in delilah dawson's captain phasma book we see his death where he actually um crash lands on the planet of parnassus um where captain phasma is from and sort of gets through that hellish wasteland if you if ever you're interested in reading it it's very much like fury road but star wars starring phasma and a hux <laughs> and uh so he plucks her out of obscurity there on this planet where they would have had no chance to escape and trains her as a stormtrooper and she ends up betraying and killing him and when armitage hux uh Donald Gleason's character from, that's General Hux that we know in the sequel trilogy sort of presented with the evidence is very much implied that he knew that was happening and is very supportive of that because that's just how they all are as they're all backstabbing fools. Um, so this is this is the father of of General Hux and uh, Operation Necromancer could very well be that uh, that business on Exegol bringing Palpatine back. It seems like that's what it is. We don't. We we. It's never been mentioned before. Project Necromancer, right? Not that I'm aware of. I yeah. mean, it would make sense as far as the name goes, but I mean, Operation Necromancer could also be bringing the Imperial apparatus back from the dead, and that could still tie into the Stormtrooper program or tie into that the the kidnapping of the kids or um, Palpatine himself. I think it's sort of left vague to. Um, you know, let us chew on that for a while. Yeah. I think this is interesting because I think this show and Dave Filoni's movie is going to feed more into setting up the sequel trilogy than I think most people realize it's going to. So, and this seems like it's, it's a direct connection to the first order here. Um, what, uh, in, you know, obviously cloning and all the, all that stuff. Um, I also want to mention Xander Berkeley is the guy that's playing Pelion, uh, who's been in many movies, Ter Terminator 2, Candyman, Gattaca, but probably best known as George Mason from 24. Um, he, uh, okay, so uh, uh, Gideon asks when Thrawn was actually, asks when Thrawn will actually participate in a Shadow Council meeting and is given the cold shoulder about how they need to keep him secret. And Gideon's like, uh, basically in, in, instead uh, proposes that they look for new leadership. Brad, what do you think is going on here? What, what is, like, is, why is Thrawn not into, in these meetings? Uh, what is Gideon's motives? And he seems like he wants to replace Thrawn. Yeah, I mean, Gideon just seems like he's sick of waiting around and, like, having all these people answer to Thrawn, and he would like to be in charge himself. Uh, as for where Thrawn is, you know, who knows? Maybe he's got his own stuff uh, going on. We don't know what, what Thrawn is up to necessarily. But, yeah, Gideon's trying to make a power play here, and he thinks that, like, he can do it because Thrawn isn't there to speak for himself, so. It's also funny how you have these, these group <laughs> of warlords all, like, being like, we need to present ourselves as we're not this organized front of people we want them to think that we're arguing with each other and then like i'm, I'm like watching this and they're, they're a group of people arguing with each other that don't seem to have it together um which is honestly like it, it's um 
Brian, would you say this is a mirror? Like in, in you know many great storytellings, you have a mirror of like the hero story and the and the the antagonist story. And the Mandalorians are like these group that you know are bickering. It, it seems like this is almost a mirror for the Mandalorians. Oh yeah, no that 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 united front that people need to put up in order to win um, is something that's common to all sides of this conflict. And I think you're absolutely right. Like this is the same thing going on with the Mandalorians. Okay, so Hux brings up Project Necromancer and grills Gideon on the the whereabouts of Dr. Pershing. And Gideon doesn't seem to be completely forthright about what happened to the doctor. And also, Hux has heard rumors that Gideon was using Pershing to conduct his own experiments on Navarro. But Gideon insists that the clone program is Hux's area, not his, or Hux's obsession, not his. Brad, what do you think Gideon is up to? If like if Hux is the one that's trying to develop the thing that ends up being, you know, uh, Snoke or, you know, so- somehow Palpatine is returned, what is Gideon trying to work on? Yeah, I mean, it's, my answer is pretty much the same as I guess as I was talking about before. You know, pro- probably giving himself some kind of edge over anybody else by creating his own army, likely of you know, force, force sensitive people that would, would help in some respects because uh, they obviously don't have anybody right now like that. The emperor is considered to be gone. Uh, Darth Vader is, is gone. And so as far as, you know, Sith force users go, they don't really have anybody who would help them withstand any remaining Jedi that might be out there. And so they need, they need probably need an edge and that's probably why he wanted Grogu. And that probably involves, you know, Dr. Pershing's research. And there's, there's definitely a, a creation of some kind of, you know, uh, soldier for him to control there. Do we know, uh, Brian, you might know this. Do we know for sure that Snoke and Palpatine came from the same program? I mean, that J.J. Uh, Abrams was purposely as vague about all of that as possible. Um, we do know that they both sort of originated on Exegol because we saw those... Um, the tanks with, those, like, rem- remnant body tanks. parts of Snoke. Ah. Yeah, so I think that that's pretty pretty solidly implied. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, okay, so Gideon wants uh, Pelion to, and Hux to share their resources, including some Praetorian guards, TIE interceptors, and TIE bombers to protect against the Mandalorians. And it's funny here how Hux and Napoleon are so unwilling to cooperate until Gideon re- reveals that the Mandalorians are going to go try to retake Mandalore. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, how many how many Praetorian guards do you need? We'll, we'll send you those. <laughs> do, do you think the reason for that is just that they are afraid of like this group, like this big group coming up against them? Or do you think they're afraid of them discovering Gideon's base and it being tied back to them? Probably all of that. Yeah, I mean, Pelion is the one who says straight up, like, a united Mandalore could be a problem for our remnant. And it's because, like, look at what they did to the Mandalorian people. They are going to come after them like a vengeance, like with a vengeance. It's like, and if anybody knows how to hold a grudge, it's the Mandalorians. For sure. Uh, Gideon declares that they will take out the Mandalorian once and for all, and cheers, long live the, the, the Empire, and uh, cut to the chapter title, chapter 23, The Spies. Every week here on this podcast, I ask Brian 
to explain to me the dual meaning of the spies. And obviously, you know, the MSD officer G68, where we start with in this episode, is a spy. But who else is a spy, Brian? I'll be honest. I think I've been I've been chewing on this a lot. I, I think uh, I I think we're gonna we're gonna see who the other end of that equation is. Um, next episode. Next episode, yeah. Because like, if you really like, I was kind of waiting for that shoe to drop that the Mandalorians were going to be betrayed over the course of the episode because yeah. of the the title. And that didn't happen, so I'm assuming we're going to find out who that was the next time, unless it's R five D four again. Well, I don't think it's him again, but we'll we'll talk about this in speculation. I I, I definitely have some thoughts on this. Um, Brad, are you under the same agreement that it's it's, it's going to be revealed next episode? Yeah, I thought the same thing. I feel like there has to be some kind of betrayal among the ranks of Mandalorians somewhere. Um, and probably whoever, you know, busted Moff Gideon out and, you know, it probably has been trying to keep them informed as to what the Mandalorians are doing and everything, which is how they were able to easily trap them. And, uh, yeah, I think that we'll, we'll find more out in the next episode. Agreed. Okay, so the Imperial Light Cruiser flies over Navarro and it's the Mandalorian fleet. And how cool is it that they painted the Mythosaur skull on the bottom of that light cruiser? That must have taken some time. Um, and I think, I think one cool thing about that too is that it's this it's it's a subtle visual reminder of Thrawn. If you remember Thrawn's ship, the Chimera, in Star Wars Rebels, and throughout the Legends, it has this sort of twisted Chimera dragon painted along the bottom of it, which is unique among Imperial Star Destroyers. And so, seeing Thrawn's shadow being evoked. And this cruiser coming in with the Mythosaur on it, knowing that Thrawn is at the other end of this story with his Star Destroyer, with his design on it. I think that that's, it's just a really cool, subtle thing. Yeah. And we also notice that in the, the, the town, the IG-11 statue is almost fully dismantled, which we learn more about later. Uh, the... Uh, the the clan meets up with the other clan of Mandalorians and as they land and there's a, like, you know, you can feel the tension in the air teasing a confrontation of Paz Vizsla and Axe Wolves, which we'll get later. Um, Reef Karga meets with Mando and offers him some spirits from Coruscant and presents him with IG-12, which is IG-11, but rebuilt as a mech. It's presented with uh, an Anzellan piloting him from the inside. And the moment I saw this, I literally jumped off the, my, my bed. I was watching in my bedroom and I screamed, Grogu is going to be in that thing. I was, I was so excited. Uh, how, Brad, how did you feel when you, saw, when you saw this? Yeah, I mean, this is a very cool spin on bringing IG-11 back. And it introduces such a fun new dynamic between grogu and and din because as as we'll see he can now kind of hold his own and like it's it's kind of like having a, a toddler like learn to walk and learn to say no and being able to like to like get run away from their parents and that kind of thing like now you know he's he's got this ig11 mech that he controls and so he can actually stand up to din in a way that he never could before yeah i love that he just has those two do you think he has more buttons than yes and no say other things 
I mean, I hope probably. So. I mean, yeah. At some point, hopefully, maybe maybe that'll be like a an upgrade that they have to give him. But but yeah, and also this acts as a, as a way of allowing Grogu to talk without making him talk yet. Brian, what did you think of this IG twelve reveal? Oh man, it was so fun watching this with an audience and people just losing their minds. And I feel like when we talked about this last week, I was like, there's stuff in this in this episode that's going to make you lose your mind. And this is one of the things I was thinking about, especially just like that and Zella looking at him like side eye with the bad baby. It was so <laughs> no, good. no squeezy. <laughs> yeah. I will say that I, while I almost always prefer puppetry in animatronics over CG, the way the Anzellan walked when it walked by Grogu looked horrible. It looked like they, they could have used some CG there. It like did not look properly puppeted or I don't know, something. Anyways, uh, that's a minor nitpick. Uh, but uh, this is, yeah, this is awesome. I'm all for this. And Brian, you were right. We didn't get IG-11. You, you, you predicted that it wasn't going to happen. But it's interesting because I feel like in the grand scheme of things of like Din's arc when it comes to him trusting droids, it feels almost like it's a step back in the fact that this is just a vehicle and not a droid coming into his, like his inner circle. We'll we'll have more droids for him to get used to. He's still hauling R5D4 around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, um, Mando doesn't seem to want Grogu to operate IG-12, but Grogu wants to and tells his dad no with the buttons, and I, I love this so much. And also, I, I number one, I have the shelf in my house. It's called the droid shelf, and it has all sorts of droids. And I've wanted to have Grogu on the shelf, but I, the shelf is only for droids, Brian. Can't have anything but droids. Now I can have Grogu on the shelf. It's going to happen. They're going to make a figure with IG-12 with Grogu in it, and I could be on my... Okay, I'm sure everybody cares about this. Um, But I will say I can't wait until a droid builder makes a remote control life-size version of this with, like, an animatronic Grogu in it. It's going to happen. It'll be great. Yeah. Um, Okay, Grogu gets distracted by a, a fruit seller in the marketplace and begins eating what the audio description describes as berries, but looks more like nuts or something. And uh, he's reprimanded by Mando. And there's some, you know, fun stuff here with Grogu playing with his new toy and, uh, you know, (laughs) Mando not not knowing how to to handle this. Uh, Later that night at the campsite, they're all enjoying food. And bread. We finally know what happened to those two baby birds from a few weeks ago because we see them roasting on spits above a fire, feeding the whole Mandalorian crew. I, I don't know if that's true. That, that would be terrible. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they probably hunted something else and, and used them to cook. I, I can't imagine that they would take them as like... <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think they're roasting the little baby chicks. I mean, I... <laughs> Their heads do not look anything close to the same. Okay. Well, <laughs> I like to imagine. That. I, didn't, I didn't even think of that, but that is that would be hilarious and so twisted. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, Bo-Katan gives a big speech about how it's being time to retake Mandalore, promising a mission uh, 
with a small recon party uh, going down to the Great Forge. She asks for volunteers from both tribes, and the major characters all step up, of course, including some people we don't know. And the Mandalorian ships jump to Mandalore, and it, it's it's awesome. It's rousing. Like, you know, th- this whole episode, I was just, like, into it. I was just so excited. Uh, there's some nice tension moments here with bo ship lowering into the atmosphere and the Mando crew all, like, you know, in their drop uh, position looking down at the destroyed planet. The uh, the Mandalorians jetpack down to the glassy surface, and later they come across a I'm gonna call it a ski ship. I don't know. Is this anything like we've ever seen? Like, as... like a sailor thing? Not real. I mean, it 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 it's it feels like it's got as many ties to like Waterworld or Fury Road as it does to Star Wars. Yeah, it's um. It, it's such a different kind of ship for Star Wars, and I like it because it's it's kind of almost like a sport ship on Earth where, like, you know, you have a whole crew, like, you know, tr- trying to maneuver it. And, like, also, but instead of it being on water, it's on ice, and it has, like, these skates. And it, I also like that it has aspects of, like, Java sail barge. It's cool looking. Uh, so they come across the, 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 the ship, and there's um, some Mandalorians who are apparently survivors uh from the the purge uh and they've survived on the planet all, all this time i have to ask this question do we believe them I, I, is there I mean, should we be taking them at face value i think so but they could also be the spies especially since they're like we can take you directly to the great forge and uh well that and also like like yeah. fe- you know, maybe feigning those two not being so well, so that they could get taken back to the the primary ship, so that they can do some sabotaging of their own to the fleet. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess the only thing I'm skeptical of is like that people would actually be able to survive on that planet for all that many years, and that kind of like uh, much of a eat the Alamites. Yeah, I mean, it's a planet. It's you know, there's plenty of places to probably find food. And also, they they never noticed this uh, these imperials coming there and building a base. I mean, it has to be really like loud. I mean, building. Peter, do you do you hear the things that are going on in Paris? I mean, no. Oh, you're saying they're on the other side of the planet? Yeah, it's a planet. Like they could be, you know, any anywhere else. Okay, fair enough. Fair fair enough. Um, so the Mandalorian survivors are played by Charles Baker, who is Skinny Pete in Breaking Bad. And Charles Parnell, who played, he's played a lot of cops and a lot of TV and films over the years, but he was recently in Maverick. And um, it's cool to see them treat Bo-Katan as royalty. Like it's until now in the show, we've seen people treat Bo-Katan with a lot of, uh, you know, they're not, not happy with her, but it's cool to see the other side of the the uh, the people that have been living on that planet that look at her a little bit differently. Uh, no, um, Bo tells the truth about what happens, what she that she surrendered to save her people in the world, but Moff Gideon betrayed her. Brian, is this something like we didn't know, or I think it's something I had assumed happened. 
I guess it was never spelled out. No, it was never spelled out. It was never spelled out exactly how she lost the dark saber. Um, but, and, and especially when you hear about these competing sort of versions of the story going around, we definitely never had a straight story, but it, it is good hearing it straight from her mouth here. Um, we learn that the armor's clan was, you know, obviously on the the moon of Concordia and, uh, you know, part of one of the fractions that came out of death watch and Bo-Katan confides in Mando in, uh, on her fears of not being able to keep the fa- factions of Mandalorians together. And we have this kind of emotional moment with Mando explaining the reasons he serves her. Your, your song is not yet written. I will serve you until it is. Um, it's a great moment. What, what did you guys think of this this whole moment? Yeah, it was a touching moment to see, you know, Din uh, coming around to respecting Bo-Katan and wanting to follow her and believing that, you know, she can bring them together and is willing to stick by her side as long as it's necessary. And I love that he's not sticking by her side because of the dark saber or anything, any, you know, because she's the princess or, or anything like that. It's, it's because of uh, her character, who she is and he believes in her. Yeah. So uh, a bunch of Mandalore uh, Mandalorian survivors are too weak and wounded to continue. So the armor takes this moment to ferry them back up to the ship seems a little too convenient to me, but we can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, I was almost at this moment watching this. I was expecting her to fly the fly up through the atmosphere and then be greeted by the Imperial remnants, like a, like a star destroyer or something. Like it felt like it was, it was, do, do either of you feel the same way I do? Like it felt like no, they were yeah. trying to build up to something like that. And, and the thing is, it's like, we could still get there in the next episode. That attack can still happen. But I was also, I was also concerned based on the title that maybe she was going to turn on Bo-Katan and come back up and say like, Hey, guess what? I'm in charge of Mandalore now. They're all dead. Or yeah. Whatever, the, right? like was- yeah. The, the tone of the music and like the lingering of the camera made it seem like there's like some, some wheels turning there and like something going on that, you know, is maybe uh, nobody knows yet. Yeah. I think we were all waiting for the shoe to drop anyways. Um, it turns out that she dropped from underneath the ground, not above it. Um, but we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, so Axe Wolves and Paz Vizsla are playing some kind of Star Wars chess game. Brian, have we ever seen this game before? No, um, we've seen a game. I wouldn't even say it's similar, but it's a holographic game that originated on Mandalore that was played between Fen Rao and Sabine Wren in uh, actually the episode aptly titled Imperial Super Commandos. Um, but it's not like this. I think this is something new for this. Well, the both of them can't agree on the rules, kind of mirroring what um, <laughs> both of them not being able to agree on the rules of Mandal- uh, Mandalorians. And they get into this dis- disagreement over the game. Paz pulls out a vibro blade and the two go at it. Uh, I know that we were only at the beginning of bringing the Mandalorian clans together. But I'm already sick and tired of this infighting. <laughs> what did you guys think of this whole fight? I mean, it was silly in that, like, one of these two needs to back down sort of way. And I really think that the um, the resolution was perfect for it. It was like the kid has to show up and be like, no. 
Yeah, and then Mando admits that he didn't learn it from him. So is he insinuating that he learned that from the Jedi? Or just, you know, maybe he did learn it from Din. Yeah. Uh, a spiked back creature emerges from the uh, Trinite and takes out the ski ship. And if I have one criticism of this whole episode, guys, or it's probably more of a criticism of the season, but I'm going to put it on this episode. I feel like uh, Dave Filoni or John Favreau that like in this this season, they keep on relying on like, you know, people are on an adventure to do something, and then a random huge creature comes out of nowhere and gives us a moment of action, and then pivots the story and it feels like it, it's a crutch that keeps on happening and I, I don't like it like what, what do you think about this big creature moment i don't sort of think of it as a crutch i mean if anything like it's kind of just like it, it takes its cues from you know classic stories and especially planets when like you don't necessarily know what's out there it's like there's always something that can you know ruin what's going on and i i, I think it especially works even better you know here because these the Mandalorians that have been stuck uh, on Mandalore are kind of have turned into like these pirates and you know pirates have to deal with with monsters like that all the time Brian any thoughts on um reusing big huge creatures this huge creature thing feels part and parcel with with Star Wars right we've been having these since you know since the beginning of Star Wars so it doesn't bother me um, the Mandalorians make their ways into tunnels leading to the remnant of the Great Forge, but the fires are no longer ignited. A huge group of stormtroopers jet pack in and attack them. Uh, they fly now? They fly now. Um, <laughs> and uh, they're all pinned down, need some help. So Axe Woves volunteers. Out of nowhere, uh, to go up and get the reinforcements. Paz lays down to co- uh, cover to allow him to jetpack out through a hole to the surface. Um, well, Brad, what are your thoughts on this whole? Like, this is a long sequence of the the whole, you know, uh, new stormtroopers versus the Mandalorian. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this action sequence? Yeah, I thought it was, a, you know, making these, you know, essentially like uh, a, a mid-level video game boss kind of stormtrooper thing where they have armor that obviously deflects lasers uh, and they have to get into close quarter combat to like, you know, shoot them in the parts where the armor isn't covering them or use their various Mandalorian armor tools uh, to to actually take care of business. Yeah, it's, it made for a cool, cool sequence. It was kind of like a, a Western shootout, but on like an even bigger scale. Yeah. Uh, the Mandalorians pursue the stormtroopers through some passageways that look less and less like the remnants of an earlier time and more imperial. And I was like, we were right. We called this guys. We, I'm going to pat ourselves on their back that uh, Moff Gideon is obviously um, uh, set up a base on Mandalore. It, it's revealed to be an imperial remnant base and the Mandalorians are trapped between blast doors as uh, Din does his best to handle multiple stormtroopers by himself, but finally, it's too much. A caped dark trooper jetpacks jetpacks down, and is revealed to be Moff Gideon. 
Brad, what are your thoughts on Gideon's new uh, Dark Trooper Mandalorian armor uh, suit thing? Well, much like your thoughts after seeing uh, IG-12 and Grogu inside of him, I was like, oh, man, I need that action figure immediately <laughs> uh, because his helmet is cool. He's got his jetpack built into his, his suit. He just he looks badass. Yeah. Uh, and like he's stepping in to, to try to be Darth Vader. Oh, you, that's what you think he's doing. Hmm. I mean, like, look at the look. Look at look at how all that is. Like, he wants to be as imposing as, as that. It's interesting. It's it's he. It's kind of like a combination of Vader and Boba Fett and Darth Maul because he's got the black, he's got the red, he's got the helmet, he's got the the suit. Uh, it's shiny, and yeah, and there's horns on the helmet too. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you guys about the spikes or horns on the helmet. What do you think? is going on there i mean there's a lot of mandalorians that have those and yeah the mandalorian like super commandos yeah it seems like they've originated through that that mall line of people and um gideon probably you know is just culturally appropriating that without actually knowing where it's from <laughs> okay uh mandalorian is taken as a prisoner and it turns out it was all a trap. Gideon monologues and explains that he created the suit with Beskar. He explains that his plan is to aggregate the best parts of every society to create his create an army that will bring order to the galaxy. Um, and notice he uses the word order. Uh, Brad, what are your thoughts on Gideon's plan to combine all the tech to make an ultra... Uh, powerful force i guess i mean there have been worse ideas Uh, (laughs) sounds like a cool one if it works (laughs) i mean it's a better idea than doing the same thing over and over again without making much change to it that's very having having another death star it it is the (laughs) province of fascists to try to create a master race uh that's a good point that's a good point um, Gideon launches the interceptors and the bombers to take out the Mandalorian ships flying above the planet, which I'm guessing we're going to learn more about next week. And Gideon asks Bo-Katan to surrender the Darksaber. By the way, I think I know what you guys are going to say to this, but I'm going to ask the question anyways. Why isn't Gideon interested in Grogu? Like Grogu is there in his base. And he's just scared about the dark saber, not Grogu. It's like if you're in a, you know, situation where there's like ten different objectives that you want, you're not going to sit there and list how much you want each of them. <laughs> See, I thought your answer was going to be that he doesn't know that Grogu's there. It, it looks like a droid. I, I, you know, I think one of Moff Gideon's <laughs> first things that he ever said was that there's nothing that anybody like assume he knows what's going on. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay, so he wants him uh, her to surrender the dark saber, and instead she carves away at the an exit, uh, which makes me wonder why did she wait that long to do that? She could have done that sooner, but whatever. Anyways, uh, uh, the Mando commandos cover her, and Paz covers them as they all escape through the passage before he sacrifices himself. What are your guys' thoughts on the, the, the Paz Vizsla sacrifice? Dude, like, did we know this character enough to for it to be an emotional moment? Was it an emotional moment for you? What did you guys think? 
Yeah, I mean, I wasn't like super broken up about it, but I think we've spent enough time with that character and he's proven himself to be, you know, a noble, strong Mandalorian and that, you know, seeing him sacrifice himself for his people uh, in a moment of uh, heroism was, uh, was, was pretty cool to see. And there's something else, too, about the idea that um, he's formidable. He was one of the few that survived. He was one of two that survived. And this is where he hangs that hat. So that's, I think that that shows like how uh, impressive the Praetorian Guard is supposed to be. Yeah, I was going to say after he is like, I'm going to like sacrifice myself. I expected him to like just be killed like right after that. But he like ended up taking out like dozens of stormtroopers after that. And then the Praetorian Guard show up and then in like one second take him out so quickly uh brian what are your thoughts on the praetorian guard and their use here as you know one of the foremost nerds for the last jedi i lost my mind this is where i lost my mind because it was so cool a seeing it connect to all of that and b it was just a cool fight and to see those weapons like i never thought we'd have a, a call to see these sorts of guys again and getting to do it was so fun and so satisfying especially in this story moment yeah, I thought I thought it was super cool. Um, then I, I, I guess we'll never get to see if Paz Vizsla's face looks like John Favreau or not, because uh, we're not, we're never going to see that face. Um, but at that moment, it, it cuts to black, and that is the end of the episode. Is there anything you guys wanted to say about this episode before we get into speculation? I don't know how to do a Taika Waititi voice where I say no, but <laughs> assume that's what I do. <laughs> Uh, okay, we're going to get to speculation. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Okay, guys, let's talk about speculation. You know, we only have one episode left of this season. It's the finale. Things are going down. Brian, I think you pointed out in the past that the the last episode of season one, we revealed the Darksaber. It's a big reveal. In the last episode of season two... We revealed the Jedi. Are we going to get a big, big reveal at the end of this episode, uh, this uh, season three episode? I feel like I, I we were expecting it to be Thrawn, but we've already seen Thrawn in the trailer. We've had him talked about now. Like, is that big enough to be so, a reveal? You know, I think so. Like, could you imagine how much everybody would lose their minds if the New Republic led by Carson Tava show up? You know, what do you like mean? Something like that. Like, I mean, to defend Mandalore, to defend the Mandalorians, to fight off this bit of like, I think having the cavalry show up is is something that could be that huge reveal. Um, and I don't know if anybody would be that excited about that, though, because the New Dude, Republic has kind of be... been made out to be like idiots in this show throw three squadrons of x-wings at anything in space and people are going to get excited about it brad what do you um, think about do you think there's going to be a big reveal in this next episode and what do you think it could be uh i don't know if there'll be a big reveal i'm i'm guessing that uh gideon needs to get killed in the next episode um, because he's trying to meddle with uh, the power structure that Admiral Thrawn has in place, and I feel like that's not going to be good for him. 
uh, and the Mandalorians probably need 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 a win here, and that means killing Gideon. So yeah, I feel like he's not gonna make it out, and uh, yeah, that's my that's my prediction. Um, you're right. If if Thrawn is around, Gideon is dead. <laughs> there's no, there's no way he's surviving next episode. The thing about Thrawn though is that if Thrawn needs to get rid of Gideon because Gideon is doing this stuff. Thrawn is going to engineer a situation, you know, like, for that to happen. And I think Gideon still has so much life left in him as a villain. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. But it, it, it well, would the other be thing a satisfying is, end yeah, if, I was gonna say that. if the Mandalorians did take him out. The other thing is, from a story perspective of, like, this is a show, it kind of seems like, you know, last season... You know, he ended up getting arrested, and then this season they broke him out. Like, it almost seems like, would they really go to this lengths to break him out and to set all this up on Mandalore and stuff to kill him off? Like, it seems like they want to keep him around uh, from his first, you know, if I was John Favreau and Dave Filoni, it, se- it seems like they like Gideon. Yeah, he's okay, a great okay. foil for them. All right, fine. I'll just go fuck myself. <laughs> I mean, if that's what you need to do, Brad. I mean, we weren't saying that, Brad. I'm just no, saying. No. Message received. Like... Message received. <laughs> okay, so this episode was called. Uh, was titled "The Spies." Uh, we only know one of the spies in this episode, but I, I, I think you guys are right. I think there is. It's possible that there's someone who else who's a spy. So the question is, who is it? Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna list down some uh, options here. Axe Woves, he disappears at the last second right before they get attacked by stormtroopers. Is it possible that he he's in on something? That he- I think that makes the most sense because they were um, him and Tosca Reeves and their sect of Mandalorians went off and they were privateers for a little while and they were already doing stuff for you know the name of the empire so i feel like that makes the most uh sense for them for them to do that and then at the same time like it's if that is the case like it it just seemed kind of like weird for i guess to for bo-katan and everybody else to be so trustworthy of them although i guess maybe they don't have a reason to not trust them but if you consider for a second what they were doing when they caught back up with them like maybe there should be some skepticism there what do you think brian but axe wolves the common refrain for this is, well, anything's possible. <laughs> um, I think the more likely alternate answer for the spies would be the new, the new, the, the guys they found on the surface. Um, yeah, I think that it's very possible that they are spies, but the other, the other possibility I think is also the armor, like, Really got out of there at a convenient time with those people, with the uh, Mandalore survivors. And yeah, but I mean, like, that could also be Faro just sort of trying to take her off the board from a storytelling perspective. Because she fights with a hammer and tongs, and that fight was very clearly a firefight. <laughs> well, I mean, that's true, too. But I, I guess the other thing that some people are pointing out online is that, you know, Gideon has these, like, horns on his helmet. And the armor has horns on her helmet. 
is there so is there something here is there some kind of connection that would have to be a pretty long con i think for, i know for her to you know that would be one hell of a betrayal and reveal and like the only way i could see that making sense is if this entire time uh, she's been acting in a way to keep all of the Mandalorians away from Mandalore because of this, which would be a hell of a ruse to keep up. And I and feel why like wouldn't she have let him kill everybody on Navarro at that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And why also would she have convinced Bo Katan to unite all the Mandalorians to cause this problem that Mipmoff Gideon didn't want in the first place? Yeah, exactly. So if the, if the, if she is involved, it's gonna be really interesting how they would explain all that. But um, okay. Uh, I, I I guess you guys have already answered this. Like, you know, what is Gideon really working on? What's his What's his real plan? So, do, do you think he's he's just trying to put himself in position to be the next Darth Vader? Like, is he he wants to be the the top leader of this Imperial uprising? Yeah, this, I think I think it's you've got his you've got you've got the look, you've got the eugenics, you've got the fascism. Like he's trying to be at the top of this heap, especially as he's doing that political maneuvering to undermine Thrawn. Uh do you guys think that we're gonna see Thrawn next week? No. Yeah, I mean, at this point now, that what they've set up with 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 Gideon, you know, even though I think that like uh, talking about Gideon maybe having to die, I didn't necessarily think Thawne was going to be the one to do it. But like, I feel like it's a reveal now. If they didn't reveal him in the Ahsoka trailer, and if you know, like, I, I feel like that they're going to save that for uh, for something outside. I, if anything, they they'll avoid it because I feel like it might overshadow you know the important parts of what needs to happen in the finale. I, I I agree with that. Um, what do you guys expect next week? What do you think is going to happen other than like, you know, obviously there's some kind of big space battle that's going to happen with the, because he, you know, Gideon has those incep- interceptors and the bombers. W- what else do you think we're going to see next week? IG-12 kicking ass. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that's a, that's a given. Um, are we going to see Paz Vizsla's son's reaction to his father's sacrifice i'm sure we'll get that i kind of hope so yeah uh are we gonna get back to the mythosaur this season or do you think that's like a long a long plan thing that could be the thing that saves them at the end right like the mythosaur just comes out and eats moth gideon (laughs) (laughs) um i don't know I, i mean this tends to be the thing with the show is i don't know where they're going because you know they're going to take back Mandalore, but then what? Like, what what is the show after that? I mean, I guess we're leading into the era of the they're Empire. Going, they're going to. I mean, yeah, we're leading into era of the Empire, but they're going to try to take the fight to the Empire. And when you look at Rebels, when you look at what happened with Rebels and how the Rebellion joined forces with the remnants of Mandalore and what the Empire did to them. That sets something up, like, especially with the relationship between Ahsoka and Bo-Katan. Like, maybe that's how Bo-Katan exits this show, is taking the rest of the Mandalorians to go over to the Ahsoka show and fight Thrawn. And then season four of this is just focusing back on Din and Grogu. Do you really think that they can go back to a small story between just Din and Grogu after doing all this? 
It depends on how satisfying the Ahsoka series and the culminating movie is, right? They're going to have to re-table set and kind of change the stakes and come up with a new big bad or something like that anyway, right? Like, so I think they will have to start small again at some point. When is Ahsoka coming out? August. Yeah, August. So we have two shows within the period of a year. When do we think this movie is going to happen? Do you think there's going to be another season of Mandalorian in between? There might be. It's really hard to tell. I mean, like, they didn't announce any dates or anything. Yeah. My speculation is that Dave Filoni is too busy finishing up Ahsoka stuff to have been, like, you know, really involved in doing a movie. But also, it seems like you don't need another season of Mandalorian to get to where they need to get to. But maybe maybe I'm wrong there. Because <laughs> it seems like the fight's about to begin, is what I'm saying. I mean, the thing is, is that the thing with Filoni and Favreau, they work so far in advance that, like, there's probably another season or two of Mandalorian written or at least conceived that... You know, it's always funny when people say, like, oh, they just reacted to Grogu leaving Luke with Book of Boba Fett and then course corrected and came back. And it's like, no, those episodes were written and ready to go before we even saw one episode of season two. Right? Like, like th- that, that decision had been made so far in advance. They're just telling the story they want to s- tell at the pace and length that they want to, and they're not course correcting for anything we're demanding or asking for. They know what's going on. Where do you think the story with, with the spy, the amnesty officer, uh, what's her name? Um, G 68. Aaliyah Kane. Yeah. Where, where do you think we're, we're going with that? Because obviously like it, I mean, I guess she could just be the spy on the inside in the new Republic. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's something that could continue, especially if Gideon's around the, 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 uh, the Imperial remnants are going to, you know, want to use her, but it seems like, uh, I don't know. I don't know where her story's going. I mean, I think they could leave her there and she's just sort of an unknown element that they could use in a bunch of different shows. She could be as relevant in that same position in Ahsoka as she is now on this show. Yeah. Do you guys have any other speculation for the finale next week? No. Sounds like we got you. Anything anything can happen, and I'm really excited to see how they tie it up and what cliffhangers they leave us with. Yeah, I really hope it goes out with a bang. Um, You know, the season has been a little uneven. I think he, uh, all of us have admitted that at, at one point this season. Um, but uh, th- this episode is incredible. You know, this episode is, is, is you know, why I love being a Star Wars fan. This is, I don't know. I, 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 I've seen it three times now. I want to go back and rewatch it again. So uh, I, I, ho- I hope whatever happens next week lives up to whatever, you know, happened in this episode. So... <laughs> um, if, if you're out there, have some speculation, have a question for us, have a comment. You can send it to us at Peter at slash uh, This, this pot, uh, all, all the, um, 
You can go to slashfilm.com and you can read. Brian has some great coverage of this episode because he saw it a week ago. So he had time to write it. <laughs> so go, go check that out. We'll put the links in the show notes. Uh, you can find this podcast in Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, and please rate and read this podcast in Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow.